0: Firstly, Mm -hmm. I want to know a bit more um, about yourself. You know, you you describe yourself very confidently um, as a feminist mother. What do you mean by that? And and why is it so particularly important to you? Feminist
1: mothering can either be seen as a subset of feminism or as an intersection with feminism, mainstream feminism. Yeah. And what it means is, it serves to help you think through what it is, what it is about mothering, What what is the practice of mothering that would be best for you and your child, rather than going along with the patriarchal notion of the mother being self-sacrificing, having endless patience, self-denial mm. in, the, in the kind of self-sacrifice mode, you know, not, not paying attention to him physical well-being or mental well-being and always being on call always even if you're exhausted you still carry on because because patriarchal motherhood mainstream motherhood says that's what you do Mm -hmm. so feminine motherhood deviates from that
0: hello and a warm welcome to season five of Brown Don't Frown podcast. Our first ever episode went live back in October 2019. And since then, we have brought five seasons totaling almost 50 guests and their stories straight to your ears. I hope you've been able to learn from them as much as I have. I am your host, Tanya Hardcastle. Brown Don't Frown spotlights the experiences of a diverse range of women and brings new perspectives. So I hope that you finish each episode feeling more rounded, energized, and inspired. Heartened by my own personal journey with pregnancy and motherhood, season five will be a special series comprising four episodes covering the joys and challenges of motherhood and maternity, and empowering change in childcare, mental health, and the workforce. The BDF community has grown so much over the past three years. Thank you to all of you who've subscribed to the podcast and left as a review. As an independent podcaster that means a lot to me. If you want to stay updated on the latest news, podcast episodes and exclusives you can sign up to the newsletter by clicking the link in the episode notes. That's all from me for now enjoy season five. Hello everyone, today's guest is Jane Chalaya, a South Asian midlife influencer and blogger who talks very candidly about motherhood, feminism and transforming the midlife crisis into a happy second phase in life. She writes two awesome blogs, midliferinlondon.com and uk, and describes herself as a feminist mother. So without further ado, I'd like to say a big warm welcome to you, Jane. How are you?
1: Hello, Tani. It's absolutely wonderful to be here. So thank you so much for having me on. It feels like a privilege.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, it's great to have you here. And I'm very much looking forward to where um, today's conversation will take us. It'll be great if you could uh, tell us a bit more about yourself. um, So your background, your work, what you do now, and a bit more about your family.
1: Sure. So I'm in my late 50s. I'm actually Tamil. So that's my Southeast Asian sort of heritage. Yep. I have a I have a daughter who's 23 I struggle Aww. to say that because I still think of her. wow <laughs> like, 23 yeah she's 23 now I, I I I'm always busy I blog I do my social media and I also have a full-time job in the public sector so it's um it's a very busy post and I I you know I one of the things about being, about having an older child is that I don't quite have to balance work and mothering. Anymore. Yeah. Yes. Anymore. Not in the same yes. way like you did in the past. Yes, exactly. Mm. Which is quite a relief because I don't think that this world actually caters for a proper work-life balance when it comes to being a mother of a young child.
0: hmm and what made you want to decide to start a family? Did you did you always see yourself becoming a mother?
1: No, I have I have quite an unusual story actually. I didn't oh, wow. actually see myself becoming a mother. I didn't want to be a mother. Oh really? Becoming a mother scared the hell out of me. So my daughter was actually a contraceptive accident. Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> But when I but as soon as I had my first scan yes. and saw her, I was smitten. Were you? From so the, it really changed yeah, your life.
0: Yeah.
1: It really did from the weeks of being pregnant. I saw this little thing and it, it completely changed my life. So I went from being afraid of motherhood to just not being able to wait to see this baby to hold this baby and to do all the fun things and I and I had the worst pregnancy ever I suffered from every you know symptom I had couple yeah 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 I had everything and it was a very painful pregnancy and people would say to me so what is nice about being pregnant (laughs) I would say because I can't believe I have this little being right inside me that responds to my voice and cakes and it was just the most it will always remain the most awesome experience of my life I think
0: Oh that's a lovely way to put it and it's so nice that you were able to embrace the motherhood experience even though it's not something that you had initially planned for it's it's nice to be able to hear that you were able to adapt and were really excited it sounds like um, by the time your baby arrived so yes. in that sense do you feel do you feel glad that you that you had a baby I am extremely glad
1: that I had a baby I think becoming a mother brought the feminist dimension into my life oh wow and it was something that i've embraced ever before because growing up i always thought feminism was for white privileged women. oh yeah Yeah,
0: yep yep i can share that that sentiment with you definitely
1: yes people like Gloria Steinem always
0: seemed very educated over there
1: i.e in America
0: Yes, very sort of middle-class outlook of of what a woman should be, that was sort of archetypal feminism, especially you know 30-40 years ago so maybe when you were sort of going up or turning Mm. into an adult that's probably what you you experienced and so you might have thought that you're um, you might have found feminism quite alien to you at the time.
1: I certainly did because at that time feminism seemed to be about um, burning your bra and contraception, <laughs> abortion yeah. rights, it didn't seem relevant. But what yeah. I hadn't realised was that feminine, there was a far more to feminism and perhaps it was also my failing not to have looked into it a bit more. Mm. And then when I, when I became a mother to a daughter, it seemed really important for me to explore And start to embrace feminism because I didn't want my daughter to grow up in a patriarchal world without recognizing what the patriarchal influences Mm. were. Yeah. So as an example, it's boys who are seen as doing better the science subjects. Mm. And And I didn't want that sort of dichotomy, you know, to... Mm. Infiltrate my daughter's mind. I wanted her to feel that she well, that she should baby. be able to embrace,
0: yeah, yeah, as 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 boys. She was just as important.
1: Yes, yes, that's right.
0: And, and how would you say? I mean, what has your um, journey with motherhood been like? Did you feel well supported and, and empowered? raising your daughter
1: so there's two aspects right the home and and the and in society I did not feel supported in society because there were many preconceptions unconscious bias if you want to call it Mm. against Asian mothers and it was about the time so I had my daughter. A sort of coinciding with the release of that book called Tiger Mother. Oh yeah,
0: yeah. And that actually added right, to, the, to the style of parenting, isn't it? Yes.
1: So I found that there were a lot of loaded perceptions against me. As an example,
0: mm.
1: my daughter was. My daughter has a very high IQ and that's been tested. But when she was small, like about two years old, three years old, I could see that she was very clever and that's why she was struggling with things. Mm. And I could see that she was bored because normal child things didn't interest her and she needed something more stimulating. Mm -hmm. So I went to see the local doctor. And immediately there was this... There was the, You know, it started off with
0: questioning me. I am the Asian mother. I am therefore pushy and I'm there. You're pushy, what- you're strict, you're overbearing. Those are the sort of stereotypes, aren't they? Exactly. With the, yeah, South Asian mothers and just, you know, Asian mothers in general. Yes. And
1: that you're expecting far more than the child can produce at that age. Mm. And also... So that was in the medical system, and it was also in the school as well. So finally, I went private. I paid to have a diagnosed privately, and and my fears or my suspicions, rather, I should say, were confirmed. Oh wow! Okay, that she had a very high IQ. Yes, they did various tests on her. So you know, it's very hard to navigate to navigate the. Um, channels of public, public agencies, I think,
0: Mm.
1: when they cast you in a certain light, they've boxed you. They're not listening to your subjective experience.
0: No, they're just grouping you into one category and assuming, you know, having these preconceived notions about who you are and, and what sort of mothering you inflict on your child then it's it's very hard as you said to to confirm a diagnosis when they've already got that preconceived notion to the point where you then had to get a private diagnosis I mean that says a lot about the prejudice innate um, at the time anyway I don't know what it's like now um, within the in medical system and, and broader society um, against mm. sort of South Asian mothering.
1: Absolutely I hope things have improved mm. I really think so but it's the impact of such prejudice yeah. is actually very detrimental in the home. Of course. You're left isolated and you have a child who's not getting the help that he or she needs. And you're not, as a mother, you're not qualified as well. Mm. You struggle along the best. And luckily I had the means, you know, so that's, again, it's a privilege to access the privacy. It is, yes, of course. And not everybody can do it. So... Mm you have to you have to kind of like wonder about how generations of Asian children are going to turn out, especially the ones in lower income homes.
0: Yeah, definitely. That's a that's a big consideration, a big factor that really does influence um, the impact you can have on a on a child's life, you know, the financial capability. Um, that's something we'll come on to actually um, in a few moments but firstly mm-hmm. I, I want to know a bit more um, about yourself you know you you describe yourself very confidently um, as a feminist mother uh, what do you mean by that and, and why is it so particularly important to you? It is very important to me
1: because what feminist mothering so, so, so one step back Feminist mothering can either be seen as a subset of feminism or as an intersection with feminism, yeah. mainstream feminism. Yeah, it's 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 a concept and a and a practice that's really quite strong in America and Canada, mm. but not so much here. And what it means is. Um, it's, it's so, it, it serves to help you think through what it is, what it is about mothering, what what is the practice of mothering that would be best for you and your child rather than going along with the patriarchal notion of the mother being self-sacrificing, having endless patience, self-denial
0: mm. in, the
1: self, in, in the kind of self-sacrifice mode you know not not paying attention to her physical well-being or mental well-being and always being on call always even if you're exhausted you still carry on because because patriarchal motherhood mainstream motherhood says that's what you do
0: mm-hmm. so
1: feminine motherhood deviates from that yeah and it says this isn't if you if you want to that's fine but this isn't the only way to practice being a mother mm. And it's about defining how you, you know, much like the oxygen mask, how you look after yourself first. So you can give. So there's also, of of course, mothering does involve sacrifice, you know, of course it does. And it does involve a heck of a lot of giving as well. Mm. But with feminist mothering, it's about putting on your oxygen mask first. So you can give the best to yourself and by giving the best to yourself, you can also give the best to your child or children. Mm -hmm. So it's it's empowered mothering. It's that empowered mothering, yeah. Yeah. So your personal self fulfillment is like an enabler
0: of of you to be a good pet a good mum. Yes. It's, it's the best conditioning that you can give yourself in order to be, you know, the best mum that you can be Absolutely. for your child. Yes. So really, you know, feminist mothering its it is, is about undoing all of those stereotypes and expectations, the sort of archaic traditions of, you know, being the all, you know, a, a full sacrificer, giving up everything, you um, which is something that to an extent you have to do as a mother, but also recognizing that self-care is part and parcel of motherhood and without having, you know, the ability to take care of yourself and make sure that you are mentally well enough, physically well enough um to be the best that you can be without having that, then you can't be empowered to, to be the best mother that you can be. And that's, you know, for a long time, the way you describe it, it sounds like it was a missing piece of the puzzle. Um, especially, you know, up until 20, 30 years ago, people didn't even recognize, you know, mental health as a as a consideration. Um, mm. especially, you know, sort of postnatal depression and other conditions that can really affect women after they, you know, give birth and looking at those issues and brushing them under the carpet or trivializing them, you know, saying, you know, just get on with it or undermining them in that way. That can be very detrimental to, you know, being the best mother that you can be, as you described. Um, And that leads me on to, you know, the theme of uh, motherhood and its intersection with identity. This is a theme that you explore, I think, um, quite extensively within your posts um, and and I I think you touched upon it just a moment ago you know the pressure for us to be perfect mothers showing only love never any negativity which is something that really ultimately makes us human Uh, it can almost feel like you lose that sense of self of, of who you were before you became a mother because it does fundamentally change you would you say um, that becoming a mother affected your identity in terms of who you were before uh, and then after you gave birth?
1: Yes, I would say becoming a mother very much affected my identity in a number yeah. of ways. but primarily, I would say it affected me in in helping me discover greater dimensions to my to my capacity to be compassionate, to be yes. kind, to mm-hmm. be considered and thoughtful for another human being and for myself too. This is something that I'd never ever thought about. And it's quite funny because it evolved quite naturally in those days, 23 years ago. There was the concept of self care wasn't.
0: It didn't exist, did
1: it? Yeah, yeah. I think self care in those days was seen as selfish or yes, a, privilege, yes. a privilege for wealthy women who could afford to go off and have spas. People who could hire childcare and and then women who could afford to hire child care and go off and do something for themselves. So it was it, it, it was pitched as it was pitch, pitched as a, a day a day out for the mother. You know it was it was always seen as a luxury. Mm, never necessity right okay yeah so, so funny how the notion of self-care just sort of evolved within me without even me putting a label to it but it effect also affected my identity in the sense that it sharpened my ambition mm. I have always been ambitious hence my social media handle
0: name ambitious mamas so so if so anything it empowered you and it made you even more motivated
1: it did it really
0: did because I
1: wanted to use my education and my agency to you know to kind of to to empower my daughter to to give her the knowledge that was required to mm. step out of the world to to be able to understand and like analyze the world around her you know so I taught her about so as another example, I taught her about capitalism from when she was very young. Mm. So I think she was about four or five, and I taught her about capitalism and people thought I was mad and and also in this in Western culture, there's fear that you can overload your child or teach them things that are not age appropriate and that they should mm. be in your childhood, which I completely understand. Yes. I do not denigrate that, but I think that notion of childhood can actually be expanded to include quite a lot. Mm. It doesn't have to be a creative play, it can also be creative thought. And so it was the use of, it, it was using creative thought to kind of teach her about politics and and how the world operated around her, mm. so she would recognize what the restrictions were on women, really, on mm. mothers.
0: I mean, knowledge is power. So, yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, obviously, you can be selective with with, the, with what you teach your children, depending on if it's age appropriate or not. But I do think it's a it, can, it's a, it should be a personal choice, really, um, mothering styles. And you spoke about capitalism. You know, making your daughter aware of what capitalism is we know that it's led to you know massive social political and economic shifts which have had life-changing effects on on everyone for a long time now and this includes in particular public services that previously benefited families and children now being reduced and and now often privatized Uh, the, the fallout of that has rested i'd say particularly disproportionately upon mothers often those from the most financially deprived groups so I'm, I'm really intrigued by the chapter you wrote, um, titled Austerity and Gender Neutrality, the Excluding of Women and Mothers from Public Policy in the UK. This was in the book, uh, Mothering in the Age of Neoliberalism. So tell us, tell us a bit more about that and, and what inspired you to write about this? Was it from your own personal experience or from what you'd heard from, from other mothers?
1: Partly from my own experience as well, because I work in the mm-hmm. public sector. Yeah, the public sector suffered under austerity. Yes, in terms of um, real term salary cuts, cutbacks in pension contributions, while prices were going up. So this was this was austerity as imposed by the coalition government in twenty ten onwards. And even though I had, and still have some amount of privilege there were days when I was feeling as if I was not able to give my child full my full attention because I was worrying constantly about money
0: Mm. that's what it came
1: up yeah yeah and how was I going to give my child all the little extra treats
0: hmm
1: and that's why I wrote this because I it was as if the scales were falling off my eyes. We had never had austerity imposed in that way ever before. And me being a new mother, first-time mother, and suffering all this and being really scared, going to bed really scared some nights, because there were things I wanted to give her, like even if it was um say a concert ticket, you know, to yeah, take her to yeah. see- Britney Spears performed, which I which I did do in the end. I just put it in the <laughs> credit I thought I'll just pay for it, worry about it later. So it was that sort of that sort of realization of how much mothers were being affected, mm. how much their sense of self-empowerment was being affected, which led me to write that chapter. And the book is still used in America and Canada as an academic tome on how neoliberalism affects mothers actually
0: and and what was the journal it's it's a journal specifically for mothers isn't it what's it what's the journal called that it was published in
1: yeah so it's published by Demeter press D E M E T E R okay which which is an organization in Canada based in Canada yeah that that is that is um solely focused on publishing journals on mothering
0: yes yes
1: and this was the neoliberal journal that was published. So the journals are used, they're very well recognized and respected, and the journals are used mm. as research, research references, teaching sources. And they wanted a UK view, So, which is why I wrote that chapter. And in it, I mentioned things like, so this is going back some years ago, about how the child benefit freeze, for example. You know, Mm -mm. um, there were restrictions being placed on how child benefit would be paid out depending on how many children you had. So, uh, So as an example, at that time, there were 4 million children living in poverty, including half a million children living in absolute poverty, where income was less than 60% of what is considered to be a good income to raise a family in. And yet universal credit um, was being introduced, which would further cut back on payments being made out. You know, So child mm. benefit degrees, the benefit system was being transferred to a new system which would pay out less. And all this when mothers were already struggling because wages were going down or the gig economy was being introduced, the gig economy was being introduced as a way of giving people flexibility. But there was no security as well, security of employment. You never knew where your next job was going to come, come from. Mm. So what all this amounted to, was a discrimination against mothers basically and the undervaluing of the care work which
0: mothers do yes yes absolutely that is a big factor i think unpaid the unpaid work the number of hours that women do you know outweigh the number of unpaid hours that men do when it comes to working in the house raising children how you know housework um and austerity, in particular, as, as you mentioned, you know, hit the most financially disadvantaged the hardest, especially you know, single mothers or um, families where you know they're, they're low earners and they really do rely on the public system to help, um, you know, with raising their children, whether that be you know free swimming lessons or um, you know subsidized childcare. But these things are becoming more and more limited as the generations go by. When you talk to, you know, people who had children, you know, in the 80s or 90s, their experiences in terms of the access to public services for their children were very, very different to, you know, what is experienced by young children now. And that's, you know, as you said, it's um, eroding of of public services over a long period of time and just the lack of investment in, in the infrastructure to help, you know, young people develop and grow. Um, and, and there is a role, you know, for the state to play in, in making sure that that does happen. Um, and this leads me on to, you know, talking about women in the workforce as well, you know, they, they experience um, an additional disadvantage compared to, you know, women who aren't mothers. Um, and this, you know, arises from the the term, around, which has become quite a, a prominent term, actually, within the sort of feminist space in, in recent mm-hmm. times, um, the motherhood penalty you know, where there's a disparity in the earnings potential, not just earnings potential, but I'd say, you know, opportunities for promotion and development um, Mm -hmm. between women, you know, who have children, those who choose not to have children. Uh, And Mm -hmm. arguably that there might be even a bigger pay gap between those two than there is between men and women. Um, Mm -hmm. And there are studies that have been done, you know, with employers where, visibly pregnant women are you know judged as being you know not very committed to their jobs you know um more emotional um less interested less motivated uh, than the you know their um non-pregnant um colleagues is this something that you've um seen f- either from personal experience or f- from others that you that you know of
1: so when i was when i was pregnant people yeah. in the world Place in my workplace assumed that I would give up work once right that was the assumption yeah that was the assumption and when I said that I wanted to carry on working after maternity leave I was openly accused of setting myself up to be a bad bad mother wow and my daughter when I went back to work it's Comments were thrown at me along the lines of, why bother having a child? Why did you even bother?
0: Oh, my goodness. So this was, what, twenty over 20 years ago now? That was the sort yeah. of... Yes, that was. That was, was a discourse that, back then within the sort yeah. of employment landscape. Okay, so... Absolutely. And people felt extremely
1: able to, to say this to your face as well. So it was explicitly said to you? Ab- explicitly said to me. Absolutely explicitly said to me yeah and I, did you carry on working there or, or what happened I
0: did, I, did,
1: I did carry on working yes i yeah. did i did i didn't want to change my um employment and it, it, you know it, it's hard enough so into this comes my race as well so as a woman of color yeah yeah it was extremely difficult it still is but far more so than to get on in the workplace to get promoted to be recognized for instance, whenever I went down, so as a concrete example of how difficult it was, whenever I went down to reception to pick up somebody who had come to see me for a meeting, everybody who was at reception would stand up because they assumed that I was the PA or, or secretary who had come down to pick them up for a meeting
0: with my boss. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So that what assumption. Happened without, yeah.
1: yeah. Happened without fail. So then I'd have to call out the name of the person who would then step forward and say, I am having a meeting with you. So that's, that's the kind of what I've painted is just a snapshot of the, um, the prejudice that you experience. And yeah. And, and, yeah. And the obstructions and obstacles. So mm. it wasn't viable to think I will up and go and find somewhere else because mm. it seemed like a pervasive way mm. of thinking in Western, in this country's psyche at that stage Mm. also when I was pregnant there was this assumption by others that I would lose interest
0: Mm. in my work yeah less less motivated yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah 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 and that was and perhaps that was true for a little while only because I was very tired and really wanted to just cuddle my baby but it wasn't it wasn't the way they 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 seemed to think it was you know that, that a sudden transition within me forever because I actually think an ambitious mother is, is a blessing and a benefit
0: mm. to the child. Yeah, of course. You want to set from a good the, example, of course, to your, exactly. to your children. Yeah, exactly.
1: And from a capitalist point of view, you're just showing them, you know, that you need a certain amount of money to be able to survive in this world as well. Yeah.
0: Well, you, you've um, just got to be able to um, adapt to the status quo, because if you don't, then, you know, you're going to be in trouble because this is the way that the economy and society has been set up. So you either sort of go with that and adapt, or if you don't, then there can be consequences, of yes. course. Um But... I think based on what you've said, and even now in, in the workforce, in, in today's world, I think not really that much has changed. I think women still feel guilty for, for going on maternity leave, for being perceived as lesser than because they choose to to have a child and, and go on maternity leave. And I think even the most accommodating and, and open of employers still sort of leave that kind of legacy uh, and uh, impression upon their employees, you know, who are, who are women and who choose to have children, I think they do still feel like that, um, based on, you know, women I've spoken to in, in the workplace, um, friends, colleagues, um, so I think that kind of guilt is still there, unfortunately, um, and it's something that, of course, needs to needs to change. Um I-
1: I would have hoped that it would have changed all this time. And I'm really quite saddened to hear that it has changed. And it also morphs into discrimination against the older woman.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And then comes the menopause mm. and there's a lot going on in the press and the media, a lot of awareness, very, very positive stories about how the menopause can be viewed, you know, and and that women suffering from the menopause on aren't a burden on society at micro level it is very hard to phone in sick on the days when you feel very bad and say I'm having a bad menopause day Mm. you have to as you've just said as well so you have to kind of you know take into account what how society reacts to such things because you want to be able to get on and you and Mm. and you you do yeah yeah
0: yeah you need to be able to survive in this capitalist world don't you and you need to to earn a living so a lot of the time you have to forego some of these issues so that you can still you know take home a paycheck effectively absolutely so what I find now is that days when I'm having to
1: work life balance menopause and hard work work that involves a lot of brain thinking and i've just completed a project where i worked 65 hours a week for nine months
0: straight oh my goodness and as you said before you wouldn't necessarily be able to do that if you had a young child it's because you you have a you have an adult child now that you're able to find a a better balance than you you had in the past yes that's right Mm. but i have to then balance menopause days as well. yeah exactly (laughs) you've got you've got that to, to to contend with now
1: uh, yeah. boss <laughs> seems to be the main component of my life so the way I manage brain fog days is by having very discreetly written notes by the side of my computer which I can refer
0: to. To walking. help you yeah to help jog your memory. <laughs> yes yes. That's that's a good tactic well it sounds like you know you're, you're doing everything you can to to work hard and there needs to be an element of discretion from your employer to, to accommodate the fact that you're going through a, a momentous life change now in this period of menopause. I think that needs to be recognized. Do you feel like it, it's recognized and, and accepted and accommodated for?
1: To be honest, I don't really think so. I think in the same way that corporate... So, so, I'm going to be quite controversial here. In the same way that corporate social responsibility mm. is
0: about
1: altering a company's guilt by saying we are doing this but secretly you know not not throwing resources at it or the funding to make it the meaningful the meaningful form of responsibility that it ought to be
0: yeah yeah so a lot of it's lip service then
1: yeah it's lip service yeah so there's lots of policies in place but
0: yeah
1: but I would not dare to call in and say I am having a really bad menopause day and therefore I cannot work
0: Mm. There's an element of, of taboo and, and shame in that as well, isn't there? Because I just I just don't think that we, as a society, we're not at that level where we can speak openly about that. It's just, it doesn't seem to be... Um, something that's accepted I think individual employers yes um for example at my, at my current workplace we had a sort of lunch and learn session where um women uh, my colleagues who've been through the menopause were very frankly able to share their stories of menopause and what impact it had on them their lives you know their families um and of course work as well so so th- we made space for that but I don't think all employees necessarily are willing um, or, or pay much attention to, to these sorts of issues.
1: Yes, I agree. And also, you know, I don't think the government is, is, is has paid lip service. It seemed, mm-hmm. seems to seems off the agenda now. So they promised certain things which haven't been forthcoming as well. So unless there's state recognition, you know, it's a problem. If a problem affects almost all women, then it requires state intervention i think in some shape or form to make it to turn it into something that benefits society it's only government intervention sometimes Mm. that can work and and
0: you're not only compounded with um menopause but you've spoken quite openly as well on your blogs about the fact that you've you know, the the sadness and the hollowness that you've experienced, um, through becoming an empty nester, you know, your, your daughter leaving home and sort of finding your own way in the world And, and what sort of impact, um, I mean, I mean, what did it feel like when it first happened? Obviously dealing with the menopause as well, changes to your life, you know, physical changes, emotional changes, um, and coming to terms with, with, you know, your daughter going away, um, and sort of finding her own way. How, how did that impact you?
1: It impacted on me very, really quite severely. It left me with debilitating panic attacks. Normally, I would have about two or three panic attacks in a year over mm-hmm. something really quite big. But in reality, I was suffering about five panic attacks a day, day after day. Uh, oh, my goodness. And we were also in lockdown. Yeah. And I was put fantastic. on the shielding list because of um, having. You know, being BAME and having underlying health conditions, inherited family conditions, so I couldn't go out as well, and I didn't see her for about three months or so. That must have been heartbreaking. It was really heartbreaking because mm. I went from. So this is what this is what part of being a mother is having a high level of noise in your home, because the children make noise, and then they bring fa- they bring their children into sorry they bring their friends into your home mm. and the noise level ratchets up and over the years there'll be points when you just think please keep quiet but your whole being just becomes attuned to having a certain amount of churn activity yes, resort, yes.
0: and then all that goes suddenly you're left all with- a sudden it's just quiet there's no sort of in between is there it's just no. you know, 100 to zero
1: yes it is it is and I wish I had been aware of this I wish I could I could hear the air rushing in my ear because we were in lockdown as I say and I was at home and I I found it extremely hard to go I, I still worked. I still kept going but the change it has taken me I would say really realistically a year and a half to
0: adjust to the change mm. and, and have you and, spoken to your daughter about it about how you felt
1: no I don't no I haven't because I don't want to obviously she reads my Instagram so she knows through that
0: <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> but
1: I don't want to burden her
0: of course
1: yeah my emotion over a decision that she has made as an adult and which yeah. I do support of course
0: of course yeah
1: but as a mother it's really hard to reconcile your daughter's right to adulthood i.e making mm. own own yeah, with a motherly need to keep them close and to see them, it's very hard. That's why I write about that. There is a lot of loneliness to being an empty nester. There is a lot of sadness to being an empty nester, mm. and it annoys me a lot when I see all these posts about how becoming an empty nester is a happy experience because you have space in your house and you can do all the things that you've always wanted to do. Mm. Just, yes that is true but it ignores the internal you know all that is external filling your time having space in your home that that is external the internal is something completely different and Mm -hmm. and in this and in this and in this age where everything is about being positive yeah i think Positivism can be taken to an extreme where you start to shove things under the carpet as opposed to dealing with them.
0: Yeah. (laughs) well in many ways i guess social media's been an outlet for being you know more authentic versions of ourselves um there's still a lot of um sort of superficial and you know um image images portraying you know a life that yes you know you might have good moments but it as you know as people say it's it's, it's a highlight you know of yes good moments in your life and people aren't necessarily um happy or or um feel open enough to share some of the sort of more difficult aspects of life on social media. But within that, there are still elements of um, acceptance and saying, you know, I've had a bad day and I'm I'm willing to document this in case others are going through the same experience. Um, and that's good because, you know, for example, you're one of those people, you know, you're you're very candid and open about the struggles that you've experienced. And hopefully, uh, and I'm sure, you know, many other women have been able to resonate with you and reached out to you and say, you know, I'm glad I'm not the only one. And and I think social media, you know, if it's used correctly, it can be a real force for good in that way in terms of um, reducing, you know, anxiety, stress um, and taboos and stigmas associated with some of these issues we've covered today but at the same time that you know you're sort of competing with uh, that sort of perfect idealized way of life as well that's that a lot of people are are more sort of focused on 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 making sure is shown on social media as opposed to you know the reality of life in the years to come hopefully we see more sort of recognition of you know reality and 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 avoid embellishing everything because that's not really how things are in reality is it? No, it's absolutely not. Especially after the pandemic,
1: I think in in lockdown we were all reduced to a basic way of living mm. where we back on ourselves. We had lots more time to ruminate and
0: become more self aware of, of what it is that we need. Those
1: emotions,
0: yeah. yeah, definitely slowing down as well. You know slowing down and looking back and being more reflective as opposed to sort of you know 9 to 5 this that the other focusing and you know overly sort of hyper focusing on making sure that everything's regimented and there's a timetable that's followed people really did slow down and take the time to take stock of you know their own lives and reevaluate in in many circumstances some of their lifestyles and whether they actually were c- content with it or whether they were just on autopilot for the last decade or and you've said, you know, quite openly as well about um, how being a mum, you know, earlier you mentioned change who you are as a person um, for the better from, from what you've said. Um, yes. so, so I want to know from you, you know, what is the best thing a- about being a mother? What's the hardest thing? Uh, and also, if you had a piece of advice you'd, you'd give to expectant or new mothers, uh, what would it be?
1: Sure. So if I start with what is the best thing about being a mother? Yes. It's this sense of seeing another human being that was attached to you Mm. grow and discover his or her world. Mm. It's that sense of seeing the world again in in a different way, but through their eyes. It's having another aspect of yourself revealed to you Mm. it's having a dimension of life opened up to you and I don't think you need to give birth to a child to experience this actually I think even if you adopt a child it's just
0: yeah Yeah, of course yeah
1: Just the aspect of having the child that does this all to you the hardest part is letting go and people think that letting go starts when they're about to go off to university but looking back now I realize that the act of letting go is such, so subtle and starts so much earlier. It's when they go to nursery. Okay, yeah, that's and when it starts, is,
0: isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and going to nursery is a really good thing. It's very expensive. But <laughs> it's a good thing because they meet other children and, and, you know, they do things that you can't provide at home. Mm. Uh, so, so that's the hard thing, you know, the slowly of letting go, the, the nursery and then the school... And then the big the big whammies when they go off to university, that's the big one because it, <laughs> it really is. That's a culmination of letting go. So letting go, I would say... Is the hardest. Is the thing. Yeah, is the hardest thing yeah. as a mother to do. And you asked me another question, I'm sorry. You asked me three.
0: Yes. So the last one was um, any piece of advice that you'd give to uh, expectant or new mothers? Yes of
1: course i'd love to it's to always recognize your own selfhood mm-hmm. yeah always take time out for yourself it'll be really hard especially in the first few months possibly the first year but to devote at least 30 minutes a day to yourself very even important if it's 10 yeah. minute chance mm. uh, you know, this is something I didn't practice, and looking back now, I should have. But, but as I say, there was no concept of self care or self. No.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So I would not eat. I'd be so busy. I would not eat till about three p.m. and then I'd have two mass, ice cream mass bars in a row.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: that would be a quick fix. Yes. Yes. Because my daughter was highly demanding as a baby. Um, so it's it's. So my advice is please. Look after yourself. Recognize your needs amongst all the chaos and the mess. You'll be overwhelmed with love. There will be a mess, a physical mess around you, washing to be done, dishes piled up, Mm. unless you have a very supportive partner. Mm. Some of those things can wait. Wow. It's the bonding time with your baby, Mm -hmm. the bonding time with yourself. Mm. That's really important. Oh, and if that's... I turn back the clock, that's what I would do myself.
0: <laughs> that's that's very lovely to hear, and it's good that you mentioned you know having the time to take care of yourself, but also not forgetting you know this is a big lifestyle change. You know, your whole life has changed in a, in a very uh, dramatic and sort of instantaneous way. Obviously, you know, you're pregnant for nine months, so you are sort of anticipating giving birth, but then when the baby actually comes, you know, it really is unexpected because as you say there are so many layers you know of of being busy and having that a a young human being there who you know demands your attention um 24 hours of the day um and it's something that you've never experienced before so having to get used to that and having the right support system around you but uh, i completely agree you know it's very similar in fact to some of the other guests. Uh, in terms of the advice that they've shared, you know, looking after yourself, being kind to yourself is another one that I got um, recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and just just ha- taking that time out for yourself and and not feeling guilty about it either.
1: Absolutely. And also recognizing that it's normal to feel a certain amount of sadness over mm-hmm. letting go of your life the way it was before. Yes, of course, yes. Because I remember the first Friday... After bringing my daughter home from the hospital, looking at her in the sleeping in her little Moses basket and then going out onto the balcony and looking at everybody getting ready for the evening out, you know, the local pubs around us were crowded. I could see I could see it all from my balcony and thinking, how long will it be before I rejoin that? (laughs) I can do that again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And my answer I think was about ten years. <laughs> about ten years. Wow. Well, I've got lots to look forward to. No. Um I think I think what you say is is very valuable and it's been really really fantastic to, to hear you talk about your experience of motherhood you know being a feminist balancing work um, becoming an empty nester you know the struggle as well the compounded effect of going through menopause as your daughter leaves uh, left the, the home um, it's been really really good to hear your perspective and I mean I, you know I'm going to be a, a, mom, a mother soon but obviously I won't be experiencing a lot of this stuff that you said in, in more recent times for for probably a couple of decades but it's it's really good to to get your perspective now and to hear about you know how things were in in the working world for mothers um you know quite a few years ago now and do a sort of reflection on how things are now as well having spoken to guests who are you know who have just sort of gone back into work or have just taken you know an extended period of maternity leave and and what that's been like for them and it's it's good to have that sort of well-rounded perspective um or perspectives over the course of this series so I just want to say a really big thank you for to you for being here today and for being so open and honest about what you've been through as a mother and a feminist and I want
1: to thank you for having me on as a guest I'm really as I said at the start I feel really honoured and thank you for allowing me to be so frank as well and for offering
0: me your your thoughts too thank you thank you so much Jane thank you Tania Thank you for listening to this episode. If you know someone who you think might like this episode, please do let them know. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as soon as a new episode goes live. Producing and hosting this podcast is done by me on an entirely voluntary basis. So if you enjoy listening, Please consider supporting it through Patreon so that it can continue to provide you with engaging and meaningful content. If you would like to donate, you can do so by heading over to patreon.com slash frown pod. If you have any thoughts or comments, or would like to get in touch and contribute to the podcast, please do drop us a line at browndon'tfrownpod at gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed listening.